Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Fanny Topper. I am the publishing assistant at Niers Press and a master's student in global and communication studies. And today I have the pleasure to be talking to Giuseppe Bolotta. Giuseppe Bolotta is assistant professor at the Department of Asian and North African Studies at the Kaposkari University of Venice. And he is research associate at the National University of Singapore's Asia Research Institute. In his research, he focuses on the history and cultural politics of childhood and youth in Thailand, development, religion, and humanitarianism in Southeast Asia, transnational governance of childhood, and the politics of children's rights in the global South. Recently, he published his book, The Little Citizens, The Cultural Politics of Childhood on Bangkok's Margins with Nias Press, in which many of his research interests are included. I am looking forward to talking about your work, Thank you for joining me here today, Giuseppe. Thank you for having me, Fanny. So the title gives it away. Your work focuses on marginalized children in Thailand's capital, children that live in slum areas. How did the focus on childhood and children come about? Well, that's a great question to begin with. Well, the first time I visited Thailand, which was more than 10 years ago, I hadn't yet started my journey into academia as an anthropologist, actually. I was working in, in Milan with vulnerable children as, as a newly graduated psychologist. And I was also a member of a European humanitarian organization that promotes children's rights in, in several countries of the global south, including Thailand. In July 2008, this organization sent me off to Bangkok with the very generic mandate to assist local social workers in in developing child protection programs for poor children living in, in slum areas. And this was my first time outside Europe. I remember that during a, a pre-departure training event uh, designed for new volunteers, these NGOs, senior staff members who were mostly psychologists with no experience whatsoever of Thailand, but they described the children we were about to meet as neglected, abandoned, traumatized, and suffering. Well, this is the humanitarian construction of the child victim with, with all its universalizing implications, which I didn't realize yet. It was the children I met in Bangkok who undermined my ideological and, and emotional convictions, if you want. Despite the hurdles of poverty, they looked incredibly vital in it, and they quite far from the Eurocentric image of the innocent, traumatized victim to be, to be saved. They were born in the slums of Bangkok and were all Buddhists. But I met them in a Catholic charity run by Western missionaries. They were attending both state and private Catholic schools, but returned to the slums during school holidays. And more strikingly, they were simultaneously supported by several both local and international aid organizations, Christian, Buddhist, and secular. And in each of these contexts, children were interpreted and educated differently by adults according to conflicting ideas of what childhood, parenthood, morality, and society are and should be. So school teachers, most school teachers, saw the children as a threat to national stability. Insufficiently Thai citizens 
as I describe in the book. Whereas the missionaries, the Western missionaries working with them in Catholic charities, thought of them as God's favorite sons. Many Thai adults approached the children as small people. Ponai is the Thai word I used for this. While Buddhist monks interpreted their socioeconomic marginalization in terms of their supposedly poor karmic structure. The humanitarian portrait of the Global South child victim, the image that Western aid agencies circulate to justify their own work, somehow further complicated the kaleidoscopic representation of these kids. So over my two-month volunteering experience in Thailand, I was repeatedly confronted with my inability to grasp these children's multiple childhoods. And, and more broadly, I was confronted with my inability to understand the different cultural, material, religious frameworks which were informing these children's everyday lives in Bangkok. A range of fundamental questions arose to which Western psychology couldn't clearly provide useful answers, such as what does childhood mean in Thailand to begin with? What constitutes childhood in a Bangkok slum? How does the secular discourse of children's rights get translated in the context of a Catholic NGO within a primarily Buddhist country? And, and what is the role of state education and families? So disturbed by these questions, in, in 2010, I decided to quit my job as a psychologist and to start a PhD in anthropology, which was a quite radical move. I returned to Bangkok to begin the long-term ethnographic study that forms the foundation of this book. And I have explored the children's multiple social locations, living with them in slums, schools, Buddhist temples, Catholic NGOs, state and international aid organizations venues. I've also observed the peer cultures taking shape in social media. Well, this book is the result of this study. Wow, fascinating. You already mentioned the multiplicity of childhoods that the children experience, and you really highlight that in your research as well. Can you maybe expand on that and on how it relates to the broader socio-political processes of Thailand? Well, that's an important question, Fanny. We should first agree on what we mean when we speak about childhood in Thailand, which is mm -hmm. indeed one of the key questions my book is built on. And then try to understand why poor children living in slum areas are commonly considered insufficiently Thai by the state. Now, in, in the Thai normative tradition of social system, the term de, which we would usually translate into English as child, often refers to someone of a lower hierarchical status vis-a-vis -vis another person, rather than to chronological age. In other words, however old is one speaker, If their interlocutor is an older person, a monk, a teacher, or simply an older friend, that speaker would be considered like a child. Childhood is thus a relational concept in Thailand and, and works as a sociolinguistic indicator of hierarchical grade. Importantly, conceptual constructions of childhood are often intertwined with precise formulations of parenthood. And this is particularly true in Thailand, in a country now run by soldiers, blessed by a Buddhist king, a royal fatherhood acts historically as a national ethos that seeks to infantilize the citizenry. If children are situated at the bottom of the Thai social hierarchy, the king is positioned at its top as the national family's father. 
So the conceptual relationship between children and adults can be understood, as I describe in my book, as the metonymic base of the Thai social units, which means that, especially in public spaces, children are expected to interact with adults as Thai subjects are traditionally expected to relate with the king. These conceptualizations of children provided basis for specific understandings of citizenship and state-citizen relations, especially as part of 20th century Thai royalist and military nationalism. So childhood is charged with political meanings. By virtue of of being tomorrow's citizens, children's mind and bodies are, are at the center of public debates about issues such as ethnic purity, national identity, and the transmission of fundamental cultural values in schools. And these debates are particularly contested when they address children who are considered abnormal or somewhat distant from the national norm. And this is the case of children living in Bangkok's poorest areas. As as descendants of migrants from Thailand's rural provinces and ethnic minority regions, Islam children in Bangkok embody somewhat the non-Thai other. And as such, they are particularly targeted by the Thai state militarized pedagogy. On the other hand, what these children encounter in their home environment, in the social media, or in Buddhist temples, Catholic charities, and Western NGOs may well be different from this. In these contexts, childhood can be conceptualized in different ways, which has profound political implications insofar as these alternative educational projects can challenge the Thai state's attempt to turn poor kids in good Thai children and loyal citizens. So in an era of children's rights, the Thai state's control over supposedly deviant childhoods is significantly challenged by multiple agencies which might hold different ideas on the so-called child's best interest. Now, the globalization of childhood in Thailand has been insufficiently scrutinized thus far, and I think that it has important connection with structural change in, in other social and political spheres. Poor children's experiences in Bangkok, the social settings, the pedagogies they are confronted with, the different ways they are interpreted by adults are embedded in institutional arrangements, which are the micro-level outcomes of broader national and global processes. And in, in my book, I analyze some of these processes through the lens of childhood, such as the development of the urban poor in Bangkok, the emergence of Thai socially engaged Buddhism, the activism of Christian organizations in Thai humanitarian contexts, the increasing militarization of Thai schooling, and and of course, the impressive digital literacy of Thai younger generations. So by looking at marginal childhoods, what my book does is to invert scholars' more conventional focus on, on monarchic, Buddhist, and state parenthood as the overarching features of Thai political culture. I show how attention to children who are typically excluded from national politics and therefore invisible in most political analysis has actually important potential for producing fresh understandings of Thailand's societal transformations. Those different spheres the children navigate in, that's really something that you wanted to understand from a bottom-up perspective. 
in your book, you, you tell us how you attempted to immerse in the children's routines and activities by, for example, sleeping in their dormitories instead of adult housing or by sitting in the middle of the classroom rather than next to the teacher. How did you experience this really close relationship with these children? Well, it was extremely difficult on many levels, methodological, emotional, practical. The life of the children I met in Bangkok unfolded in multiple social scenarios, right? In, in multiple institutional sites, public and private spaces. I followed them around like a kind of bulky shadow, a strange white person, Farang, as, as Thai people say, who speaks Thai like missionaries, but is not a priest as a child, <laughs> observed ironically once. So I spent six months with them in the slums, eight months in the school, and about one year in both religious and secular NGO venues. And in each of these locations, uh, particular constructions of childhood molded adult children patterns of interaction in surprisingly different ways. In exploring this diverse institutional and ideological endeavors to support or, or to govern slum children, my book reveals the extent to which the futurity inherent in, in childhood becomes a site of political contention and how different organizations, the Thai militarized state, engaged Buddhism, Catholic missionaries, Western NGOs, are attempting to define Thai society and its urban poor's future really through the modeling of marginal children's minds and bodies. Now, in addition to investigating the multiple political meanings of childhood and Thai society, this book also details how children, poor children in Bangkok, form their own sense of self through these multiple cultural contexts and political processes. So in order to capture children's social world from the bottom up, as you mentioned, I accessed each field site as the children normally did, which of course produced contradiction, paradox, and ambiguity, right? I tried to participate in the children's routines as one of them, which of course I often failed miserably. During school lessons, I, I usually sat in the middle of the classroom rather than standing next to teachers. And I was perceived as a big, white kind of student researcher, which was awkward. But yet I was perceived as aligning with the children rather than with teachers. Mm -hmm. Clearly, though, uh, for both research and practical reasons, I also built positive relationships with the adults in charge. But children were smart enough to understand that I had considerable influence over local adults, uh, which they could use to their advantage. So I have to say, I, I felt initially quite disoriented emotionally and spatially by, by the continual shifts in the research setting. Over time, however, the, the multi-situated positionality of both myself and the children became a kind of cross-contextual, recognizable feature of our atypical relationship, a kind of stable emotional element in the midst of ever-changing realities which deepened our mutual trust and affection. Yes, I was a white person, I was a friend, but, but unlike Western NGO volunteers, I spoke Thai, I lived with them in the slum, I accompanied them to the temple, I was with them at school, and, and more importantly, I tried not to intervene in their life choices. As a whole, 
children's and adults' different interpretations and, re and reactions to my changing roles turned out to be an important source of data. The way the children interpreted my role and behaved with me at school, for example, stood in contrast to the way they related with me in the slums. And this allowed me to understand different constructions of childhood and different constructions of adult-children interaction in various social contexts. And is it right that you spent 12 years in total following these children or 10, 12 years? That's a long time. Thinking of that today in a different way or how are you reflecting on that? I'm still following them in a way. I believe this is a quite unique feature of my study. It's longitudinal scope. I followed these children's biographical trajectories over many years, a time during which their lives underwent radical transformations as they strived to reach a coherent sense of self in a context that is shaped by social suffering, poverty, and political volatility. I think this work allowed me to capture the roles of culture and power during that stage of human life where the interconnection between nature and culture, so-called, is more evident, which is childhood. Today, I can't simply look at them as research participants, obviously. We became friends, and I'm still in touch with many of them. I saw them grow up, marry, becoming parents, which are all quite meaningful life events. Although in different ways, because each child had their own biographical trajectory, all of them struggled with, with the social stigma related to their deviant categorization as slum children. The, the category of slum children implied the placing of all these children in a wider ethnic category of non-Thai other, a category that carries a heavy stigma, especially in public context, where the state discourse of Thainess, the Thai national identity, is most strongly expressed. As a result, all over the years, the children used different strategies in order to avoid being identified as slum children or to build a self-worth despite their ethnic and class profile. I think that my analysis demonstrates the uncanny capacity of poor children to, to incorporate, reformulate, contest, and deploy multiple childhoods and to act as kind of social chameleons, disguising or accentuating the bodily, emotional, and communicative expression of self according to the situational context in which they are performing at any one time. As I show, this process of self-formation engages different cultural notions of personhood, tininess, ethnicity, and the hierarchy at various points in time and, and with different themes. I would say as a whole that during doing research with growing up individuals presents uh, specific challenges. The acceleration and radical transformation of research data being probably one of the most relevant. All anthropologists and social scientists have to deal with the problem of rapidly changing social realities. It's like the object of study changes faster than our own capacity to make sense of it. But this is particularly true with children. Though culturally varied, the rhythm of personal and social transformations that children go through is particularly impressive as they approach, say, puberty. And you also learned a lot from the children while um, doing your fieldwork, right? Um, you write yeah. 
you literally had to learn how to survive in the slums of Bangkok. But in that same time of six months in the slums of Bangkok, you also observe the family structures. They are being predominantly matrifocal, with households being run by mothers and grandmothers. And I'm curious to hear your impression was on women's and mothers' socio-political leadership in these slums. As you mentioned, many of the children lived in, in matrifocal families. Most residents in the slums were ex-farmers from Thailand's northern and northeastern regions, where matrilineal and matrilocal kinship patterns are deeply rooted social realities among local ethnic groups. Households very often included grandmothers, mothers, a large number of nephews, and foster children. When compared with rural contexts, urban slums are in fact marked by, by the absence of men and by a privileged bond between mothers and children. Men in the slum are often described by women as unreliable providers, violent, and likely to spend all their time and money with friends, basically. So in the book, I show how mothers in the slums are, are actually taking up leadership roles and have been becoming prominent figures in, in leading poor people's social movements in the capital. And what I argue is that their leadership is connected to the humanitarian value of their children and to the related proliferation of NGOs and, and aid organizations in slum areas. Uh, why? Because the humanitarian construction of slum children as victims, from which we began our conversation, is actually something that can be effectively instrumentalized by slum residents as an economic and political resource, particularly by the children's mothers. Thanks to the strategic use of their relationship with both children and NGOs, Mothers, this is what I describe in the book, have been able to push slum issues into the political spotlight, thereby making the urban poor more visible. And this is a remarkable achievement in a country where political participation is traditionally considered as a male prerogative. So I argue that inside the nation's cosmological, political and economic center, that is Bangkok, slums constitute another within, to borrow an expression coined by Thai historian Ton Chai Vinichaku, another within which the government struggles to govern, while mothers and children are probably becoming the new weapons of the urban week. Oh, fascinating. I'm a little afraid we have to come to our last question, but I'm eager to hear about more recent developments. Young people have been featured as key players in recent mass protests in Thailand. And your study demonstrates that children can play quite an active role in the remaking of adult society. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, my book demonstrates precisely marginalized children's ability to, to affect social political change. Many of the children I worked with who are now young men and, and women have in fact joined the youth movement that, that is currently shaking Thailand's political landscape. Among the many features of this youth movement, I believe two are quite remarkable. It's digital infrastructure and its variegated expressions. Protesters draw uh, on a range of cultural symbols to articulate their dissent, which go from, from Japanese manga to Hollywood, from Thai astrology to the French Revolution. So they seem to be shaping up what anthropologist Arjuna Padurai described as a, as a bottom-up cosmopolitanism. Some conservative Thai observers 
argue that Thai youth display symptoms of so-called cultural schizophrenia, which is a fragmented subjectivity split between the so-called Thai self, which is perceived as authentic, and a non-Thai self, which is projected externally in the shape of fashion trends, consumer behavior, and Western-like activities. In contrast to this reading, other scholars have analyzed Thai youth's consumption of popular culture, say social media, music bands, fashion trends, movies and TV shows, etc., as a form of generational rebellion to the official paradigm of Thainess and to Bangkok's political traditionalism. Now, my research shows how the globalization of children's rights and the transnational expansion of the humanitarian enterprise have introduced a broad set of new assumptions about childhood, education, and citizenship in, in Thailand's politically marginalized landscapes. And in the process, they have also provided poor children with alternative discourses, social venues, role models, religious ethics, and economic tools. Moreover, younger generations privileged access to new media and the global connectivity of social networks constitute yet another space of collective self-elaboration, a virtual framework of subversive expression, which can be, as we are witnessing nowadays, vector of fierce generational descent, and where Thai social norms are constantly questioned, reconfigured, or reinforced. So rather than a symptom of cultural schizophrenia, I believe that today children's hybrid, multivocal, and polysemic selves can actually work as a valuable resource against state violence. Although at times, as my research shows, this highly unusual plurality of cultural references can become disorienting for the freest subjects and does lead to, to existential fragmentation. Giuseppe, it has been great talking to you and hearing more about your fascinating work. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much, Fanny. It was great speaking to you. And thank you, listeners, for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I am Fanny Tapa, publishing assistant at Mias Press, and I have been talking to Giuseppe Bolotta, author of Belittled Citizens. This book is available on our website, nearspress.dk and you can find more details in the description of this podcast episode. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.